We've got a Redeemer that we can glory in. That's such a good song to sing together and to proclaim God's goodness. Um, good to celebrate communion with you guys this morning. It's just been so blessed. I'm excited to, to jump into the Word uh, with all of you this morning. For those of you I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, um, Billy Blakey, I'm the, the new uh, pastor of students, and it's just been such a joy to come here to, to Lakeside and even to, to get to be with the students over the last couple weeks and get to know them and just excited to see what, what God is going to do uh, in and through his word and through his people and his spirit in the lives of, of young people here in the Montgomery area and here at Lakeside Bible Church. Um, and I just want to take a moment to, to just thank all of you. Uh, as, as Corey and my son Charlie and I have moved here, we've just been so loved and, and blessed, and we feel like we've been bathed in the, the kindness and love at Lakeside Bible Church. So we just want to say thank you. We're so happy to be here and so happy uh, to be serving uh, alongside Ken and, and Adam and, and Blake. And, and just remember to play, pray for, for Ken and Adam as they're continuing to minister in New Zealand. Uh, and as we were talking about their trip, uh, Ken was gracious enough to uh, offer me the opportunity to preach this morning. And I'm uh, humbled and excited to, to jump into God's Word together. So open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Titus 3. I wrestled and prayed for a while about what passage of Scripture uh, would be good for us to, to dwell on. I trust that, that this will be a fruitful and refreshing and challenging passage of God's Word for us all. So read along with me from Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and, sh and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another." But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let me just pray and ask God's help as we all go to the word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is powerful, that it is effective, that it is sufficient for us, God. And so we pray uh, this morning as we, as we unpack this passage, Lord, that the glories of our Redeemer would be would be shown, and God, that, that we would be shown how you want us to live as your people, and ultimately that all of that would result in you receiving the glory and honor and praise that you so richly deserve. So Lord, we ask for your help this morning, and we pray that you would work. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't know if you guys are anything like me, but I can tend to be a forgetful person. I don't know, anybody out here also forget things from time to time. I'm thankful that I have a calendar on my phone and my computer and my iPad to keep my life in check because, you know, I'll set up a meeting with someone and it'll just fly to somewhere that I can't recall it without electronic uh, medium. And I've realized that one of the places 
as a new homeowner that I'm forgetful very often is the Home Depot. It seems that I always remember something that I needed there as I get, as I get home. And uh, I think that's just our tendency as people in this fallen world is that we're forgetful. And, and I think that that can, can translate into our spiritual life, right? That we can forget things that God wants for us to remember. And if we look throughout the Bible, we see uh, instances time and time again of the nation of Israel. It seems that every time that they were headed off into sin, that, that first started with them forgetting something, that they forgot the Lord, that they forgot the works of the Lord that he had done for them in Egypt. And we need to remember, we need to be in the constant process as God's people of, of being reminded, of remembering things that God wants for us to have not just in the dark recesses of our mind that we learned it once, but it's, it's right on the forefront. It's right there for us to think about and dwell on daily. And that's kind of the heart of the, the passage that we find ourselves in this morning, that Paul is writing to uh, his protege Titus, who is helping uh, shape the church and helping appoint elders and, and helping uh, the church grow on the island of Crete. And his, his aim is to remind Titus, to remind the believers of certain things. He shares the same heart as Peter, as he wrote in 2 Peter 1.13, of his desire to stir up the believers by way of reminder. And as we unpack this text this morning, we're going to see three things that God wants for us as his people today, right here in Montgomery, Texas, or Lake Conroe, wherever we live, that we need to be reminded of as well. And the first thing that we're going to see is that we need to be reminded of what God wants for us to do. Look again at verses 1 and 2. With me, Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, as we look at these, at these verses, it, it can kind of seem that this is just a rapid-fire list of, of God's commands that, that Paul wants to remind Titus to remind people about. But as we even kind of look at it, we can kind of see that these commands kind of group themselves into two groups in the two verses and it seems as if the first uh, verse um, helps us to remind how we're supposed to relate to the authorities that God has placed in our life. And in the second verse, we see how we're supposed to relate to other people. And this is part of what Paul has been doing in this letter of Titus. In the first chapter, he's talking about leadership within the church, getting a foundation of, of elders. In the second chapter, he's talking about relationships in the church. Let's get older men teaching younger men. And it seems as if in chapter 3, he's almost kind of broadening his area of shepherding Titus to see how are we supposed to relate within the church, but also to relate to people within the world, right? We see verses like in verse 2, we see to speak evil of no one. It's kind of all-encompassing at the end of verse 2 to show perfect courtesy toward all people, not just specifically believers within the church, but everyone, but everyone. And I think that Paul takes the time to remind Titus to remind the believers of these things for, for a couple of different reasons. And one is that, that Paul knows the human heart. Right? Paul knows that in Jeremiah 17, 9, Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitful and wicked and proud. And, and he knows that as believers, that as long as we live in this fallen world where we still have the flesh until Jesus comes back and our bodies are renewed and we, we don't struggle with a propensity to sin anymore, that we're going to struggle with, with pride. And as long as there is God-ordained authority that God has put people in authority over us, whether that be government or employment authority, bosses, family authority, parents, the authority of elders of a church, that we need to be reminded about how we're supposed to submit to that authority. It's easy for us to become proud, to think that we know better, 
than the authority in our life. And, and there can be the tendency that if we're not remembering, if we're not being reminded to be submissive, that, that we won't. And the second reason why Paul might want to remind the believers of this is that he knows that the church is going to continue to struggle while it lives and operates within a sinful world. Paul knows that the government of his day is corrupt and sinful and wicked. It's ungodly people who are ruling the world at the time that Paul writes this letter to Titus. Corruption, unfair taxes, immorality were rampant throughout the culture of his day. I mean, that, of course, looks nothing like the culture that we find ourselves in today here in America. And Paul knows that while the church is in this pagan, anti-Christian culture, that the churches in Crete and us today, that we're going to struggle with the desire to maybe not be submissive to ungodly authorities that God has allowed to be put in our life. That, that maybe we could even start to think that maybe our problem in America today is a political one. That if only we could get a Christian candidate in the White House, or maybe at least one that you know, has moral fiber and, uh, and things like that, that everything would be all right. But Paul, Paul knows that as long as until Jesus comes back and establishes his reign forever, we're going to continue to struggle with a sinful and broken and fallen, fallen world. And so we need to be reminded. And the first, first way he reminds us is towards that authority that God has put in our life. Let's see the, the three commands here in verse 1. To, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, he doesn't specifically say who these rulers and authorities are. If he wanted to say the elders of the church, he could have been more specific. But it just seems that in general, God wants us to be submitted to the authorities that he has allowed to come into our life. So let's think for a moment about who those authorities are. Certainly, we've got government, right? It's clear from Romans 13 that government is ordained by the Lord for the welfare of the people that are being government, and, and we need to be submissive. To the government, And God doesn't give us the option to only be submissive to government officials that we like and agree with or policies that we like and agree with. Employers are another authority. God has ordained workplace authority. A lot of us have jobs where we have a, a boss who is over us. We need to submit. Family, those, those young people among, among us here who are still living at home, God, for your good, has sovereignly ordained your parents. Can I get an amen from parents in, in the room? Yes. Yes. You had a responsibility to submit to our parents. And, and lastly, maybe in the church as well, that ultimately Christ is the head of the church, but Christ has also ordained and equipped and gifted men who are going to serve in roles of leadership within the church. And, and these are these is what God has brought to us, that God has ordained authority to be in our lives. And God calls us to be submitted to that authority. That, that means that we willingly put ourselves under the leadership of the authority that God has put into our lives. And this is crucial for us as believers because submission is really a key characteristic of a person who's, who's truly saved. Right? We, we submit to a ruler in government and to a ruling authority there, not because we like them or we think they're just the best thing since sliced bread or whatever, but we really submit to the government because we are, as people, submitted in our hearts to Christ, submitted to his rule and his authority in our life. And so really, if we were to not submit to the governing authorities or not submit to our parents or to our boss, we're really just not submitting to them. We're not submitting to the Lord who has caused them to be in authority over us. Now, the next command that we see is that we're supposed to be obedient 
And this is kind of a, another general, general command. And, and we know that, um, you know, we want to be obedient. And we know that if there were ever a point at which the government would tell, tell us to disobey commands of the Lord, there's no doubt where our loyalties lie, right? We see from Acts 6 where Peter and John are hauled before the, the Jewish council and they're saying, hey, we want you to stop preaching the name of Jesus. They say, hey, we've got to obey God rather than men. So it's clear that at any point that the government or any kind of authority might cause us to go against God's word, it's, it's clear that we're supposed to be obediently, ultimately to the Lord. But as much as we can, we want to obey. And if you think about the well-known account of Jesus in Matthew 22, where the Pharisees come and they've got the, the coin and they want, to, they want to trap Jesus, and they're like, hey, should we pay taxes to, to Caesar? And, and Jesus you know, says, hey, who's... who's whose picture is on, the, is on the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. And, and, and so Jesus, I mean, he's not, he's not agreeing with Caesar's moral fiber. He's not agreeing that this tax is fair and just and right, but he models obedience. He models obedience even to sinful, wicked authority that was in place at the time that Jesus himself lived on the earth. Right? We want to obey the authorities that God has put in us. And, and, and that's the heart of the leaders of, of our church, right? That we want to ultimately obey God's word. And so every week on those sheets that are in the back, you, you see application questions listed on the back. Because it's, it's the desire of Ken and the elders and us as pastors to help us all be obedient to God's word. That we want to ask questions that are going to help us to really wrestle with this. That we're not just going to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. People who actually are obedient to God's word. And look at what it says next. It says to be ready for every good work. We shouldn't be those who are reluctant to do what is good and right. In our society, at our workplace, we shouldn't let godlessness of people over us to make us hesitant to do what, to do what is right. In the church, we should be at the ready, right? If an elder or a uh, a leader in our church would come to us and say, hey, we need you to, to help us with this. We need you to jump in on this ministry. We need you to be in, involved in this. We shouldn't be like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I can, I can do that. Let me, let me get back to you. We should be ready. We should be eager and looking for opportunities to do the good that God has called us to do as his people. Right? We, this first class of commands, it's all about are we really submitted to the authority? Are we ready? Are we obedient to do what God has called us to do with the authorities that he has placed in our life. Now, in the second category of commands we see in verse 2, we see that it really deals with our relationship with other people. Now, there's certainly some overlap, like speaking evil of no one. Certainly, we can apply that not just to the people in this room, but to unbelievers in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, to political leaders, speak evil of no one. Not just the people that we don't like or ungodly people, but to speak evil of no one. Now, that's not saying that we can't disagree or uh, critique a, a decision. Of, I mean, obviously, if there's a decision that a government official makes that we think is unwise or, or ungodly, we don't necessarily have to agree with that. But what we're talking about is maligning, not, not critiquing or, or disagreeing. We're talking about contempt. We're talking about speaking of a person as if they were worthless. We're talking about tearing a person down, ripping them apart, with our words. And as believers, God wants us to be reminded that there can never be a category of people that we say, oh, it's okay to bash on this group of people, whether it's politicians or whether it's lawyers or whatever, whatever it might be. 
Even as we think about politicians, God wants us to pray for the authorities and rulers and kings and presidents that God has put over us. Not, not to malign them, not to, to tear them down. Even if we disagree with them, we still need to speak respectfully about them. We need to speak courteously towards them. The second, the second is that we are to avoid quarreling, he says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. And oh, how the church needs this reminder today. I'm sure that many of you have experience with the church. I mean, obviously not Lakeside Bible Church, but uh, maybe a church that you've been at in the past or maybe a church that you've heard of where there's disunity and, and uh, division within the church, right? The church splits happen all the time over issues that aren't issues of doctrine that are, that are crucial or issues of, of immorality or sin, but issues really of preference. I mean, haven't we heard of church after church in America that's been divided and split over worship? Not the content of the worship, not is this song biblically accurate? Does it accurately pro- proclaim what God has done for us in Christ? But I just didn't like that instrument, or I didn't like the pace of that song, or my musical preference is really what, what runs the day. And, and he says, Paul says here, to avoid quarreling, that we want to get as far away from being quarrelsome as we possibly can. And I think this is a, a timely reminder for us, even as we're about within the next year or so, to move into a new building, right? And every time we go into a new space, there's, there's always various opinions. I think the walls should be this color. I think the carpet should look this way. I think the chairs should be arranged like this instead of like this. I think the volume should be this loud. All of these things, right? That as we go into it, when we're making some of these decisions, if we were to interview all of you about your opinions and preferences for what what the new building should look like, we may get as many different opinions and preferences as there are people in this room, right? And we need to, to check ourselves and make sure that, that as we interact together in the body and, and as, we, as we even think about this new, new building, that what we're really about is not my own personal preference. I would like it to be this way, right? That, that we care more about other people than we do ourselves, and so we avoid quarreling. Right, that we got we to keep our preferences in check, but we also got to keep just our relationships in check. Maybe, maybe there's another believer here. Maybe you even go to a different service than they do because you, you just can't stand them. Maybe there's another person that, that annoys you. Maybe it's their personality or maybe it's the fact that they've wronged you in the past or, or sinned against you. Right? We, can, we can become quarrelsome if we're not reminded. We can get in little verbal jabs in conversation or we can, you know, kind of create our own little side conversations where we talk down about a person and start this quarreling and this division within the church. I think maybe one of the areas that we need to be reminded of too as well is to avoid quarreling with non-believers. I think it's very sad that in our culture today, many non-believers are, are turned off to Christianity, not because of the gospel, not because of the message that we proclaim that they're a sinner and need salvation, which is only possible through Jesus Christ, but because of the argumentative nature and the quarrelsome nature of believers. There's many Christians in America today that care much more about winning an argument with a non-believer than they care about that non-believer. They care about the state of their soul. They care about their eternal destiny, where they're at with, with the Lord. Maybe, maybe you should even think about your neighbors. Is there a neighbor that has a different political affiliation from you? That could be a, a oh, we're not going to talk, or, or maybe we talk all the time, and it's just, oh, states' rights and, and all this kind of stuff. 
we've got to be careful that we're not quarrelsome with those outside the body of Christ. We want to, we want to be compassionate, right? Continuing on, that's, that's what Paul leads to next is that he wants us to be gentle, gentle people. Gentleness is this sweet reasonableness that we can have with other people. It means that we don't hold grudges and that we give other people the benefit of the doubt. How many relational conflicts could be solved if we just gave other people the benefit of the doubt? If we just, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, if we believed the best about other people, right? How, how many conflicts would be nipped in the bud if we were reminded to have this kind of gentleness about us? And lastly, he says there's this perfect courtesy, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This perfect courtesy is the opposite of self-assertiveness. It means that I don't treat myself as a big deal around other people. I'm, I'm lowly. I'm, I'm nothing. It means that I, I view offenses against myself as very small and trivial things. I've heard it said by one that, that it means that we're unbothered by things that are a bother. Right? We show perfect courtesy to other people, that it's not, it's not about us. We're not self-assertive. We're not, hey, take a look at me, but we're courteous to other people. We care more about them than we care about ourselves. And these are all the things that, that Paul, as he's writing to, to Titus and saying, hey, I want to help you get this church solid and established and reaching out to unbelievers around you on the island of Crete. These are the things that Paul wanted to, the believers to be reminded of. And we need to be reminded of those today. Many of these things don't come naturally for us in, in, our, in our flesh. Right? Think, about, think about your own life for a moment. Do you submit to the authorities that God has placed in, in your life? Do you submit to the government? How do you talk? What are your conversations about our current government? I know there's a lot on the news about scandals. How, how do you talk with other people about those in authority over you? Do you at work? Do you malign your boss behind his back uh, alongside your coworkers? Or how, do you, how do you submit to your authority at work? Kids, are you submissive? Are you willingly placing yourself under your parents' authority? even if there's things that you don't understand or agree with. Now, think about the unbelievers around us. Are, are we quarrelsome? Is there a distance between us and them because we're annoyed with them or we see them living out who they really are as non-believers and that just kind of, it, it just kind of irks us. And so we say, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna create distance between me and this other person. Or are we these gentle, courteous, compassionate people who care about the non-believers around us. And these are humbling verses. I, I think even as I've studied them this week, I, I see just my own need to, to continue to grow in this, to be reminded of this, to be thinking about these things on a, on a daily basis. But it's interesting what Paul does here. He says, I want you to remind them of all these things that they are to do. And then in verse three, he immediately launches into a discussion of our own sinfulness. Right? It seems almost odd that, okay, here's what you do, and then, hey, remember you're a sinner. Remember your, remember your sinfulness. It, it almost seems a little bit odd, but we see that he's not starting a new topic of conversation because there's this connecting word in verse 3, 4. Right? This is deeply connected with what Paul has just said. We're familiar with the way that Paul uses this. right? You guys remember Ephesians chapter 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, you know, and then in verses 6 through 7, he goes on and he talks about the grace of God. And then he says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, not as a result 
of works. As, as Paul is wanting to bring the focus on God's grace, he connects it with this word for, and he uses the same connection here in verse 3. And, and I think the connection is here because as I pondered this over the last couple of weeks, I think that failure to remember to obey these commands of what God wants us to do is first going to stem from failure to think about ourselves the way that God wants us to think about ourselves. When, I, when I'm filled with pride, when I have a high view of myself, I'm, I'm much more prone to be unsubmissive to authority. When I'm, when I'm kind of self-focused and selfish, uh, I'm much more quick to be quarrelsome with other people, to be not, not gentle and courteous, but self-assertive and rude with other, with other people. It reminds me, I, I uh, took a trip this week back to, back to California. I photographed a wedding yesterday and flew back last night. And even though I've only been gone from California for a couple weeks, it's already this process has started of, of like memories. That as I like just drove down the streets of the city that I used to live in, like all these memories from how Corey and I have lived there over the last eight years um, just flooded in. It was like they just flooded into my, my recollection. And I was thinking about it as I drove past the place where Corey and I had our first first date. Corey and I have been married almost seven years, and it just keeps getting better and better all the time. But even as I was thinking about this, this message, I was reminded of the time where, um, as we were engaged, we got to the day where we registered for things that people were going to give us for our wedding. If you're a young person and you don't know about this, it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> you, you go to Target, and they give you this little scan gun, and whatever you want, you scan it, and people buy it for you. It, it's amazing. It's such a blessing that people, you know, you don't have a spatula as a single person for the most part, and people buy it for you. Um, and I remember that day as we were going through, and I, of course, you know, was taking the scan gun, my role as the man, you know, really just making sure that the weapons were, you know, safe and used efficiently. And, uh, you know, we're going through and we're scanning things and things we need for our house and utensils and plates and, and all of these things. And I, I pick up this one item and I, and I go to, to begin to scan it, and Corey stops me, and she says, what in the world are you doing? You're almost ready to scan it. And, and I'm like, well, we're, we're going to need this. She says, no, there is no way we, are ever, we, we should ever scan this. And the item that we had almost begun a little quarrel about was a turkey baster. <laughs> Here we are in an aisle at Target having a disagreement about a turkey baster. Of all, of all things. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, hey, there's going to be at some point in our lives where we're going to need a baste a turkey. And so let's get a turkey baster. And Corey's thinking, you know, we have Thanksgiving at your parents' house and, and all of these things. A turkey baster is a large and unruly object, and it's going to jam in the drawers. And, you know, really, as I think back on it now, Corey was the person that knew what we needed in the kitchen. She, that is her realm of expertise, not my realm of expertise, but I had allowed myself to start thinking highly of my culinary game, and so I thought, we're going to need to baste something. And that's what happens in our lives. If we're not thinking about ourselves rightly, if we're thinking of ourselves highly, we're going to see that show up in conflict in relationships. We're going to see that show up in the way that we think about and talk about authority. And so the next thing that we need to remember, to crucially remember is who we were apart from Christ, as we see Paul describe it here in verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating 
one another. Now that is not a pretty portrait that Paul paints. And some of us, I think if we're honest, we struggle to see ourselves in this verse. But this verse doesn't really give us the option of excusing ourselves from being characterized by it. Look at how Paul includes himself and Titus in this description. He says, we ourselves, we ourselves were once foolish. We can't say, I grew up in a Christian home, so this this doesn't apply to me. I didn't have a sordid past. I grew up in the church. I was in the church the first day I was born, nursery. We can't say that. But look at how we're described here. The first thing he says is foolish. I don't particularly like to think of myself as, as foolish or as having been foolish, but yet here it is leading the list. We may think of ourselves as not being foolish because we are intellectual. We've got degrees. We've got postgraduate degrees. We've got you know, generally good business sense or we've got organizational skill and we can manage time well. But let's take a, a look for a moment at what the Bible says is foolishness. David in Psalm 14, one says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Even, even right there, many of us are convicted of our folly immediately. Right, there are probably many of us here th- this morning who at one point in our lives uh, maybe wouldn't have uttered those words out, out loud, but we functionally lived our life as if God does not exist. We may not have said, I am an atheist or, you know, liked an atheist group on Facebook or, or something like that. But the fool says it in his heart. The fool lives in the core of who he is without reference to God, without submission to God, without love for God. And if we can continue through the Bible in Proverbs, the fool is described at length. And in Proverbs 28, 26, it states, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Certainly, This has described us at some point in our life. We may not have said God doesn't exist, but we lived according to our own thoughts. Our own ability to reason and make sense of this life and what's important and what's not was what really guided us. We could cite many other verses, but but let me actually just read from from Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1, Paul Paul writes of non-believing people, and he writes in verse 21, for, all they knew, for although they knew God, God had created this world so that everyone would, would know there's a God, there's a creator who made this, made this all. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And how did they do that? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here we see that foolishness is really a matter of, of what we worship. We're all, we've all been foolish in this regard. Before we were saved, all of us pursued and worshiped another God, another God that is not the true God. Some of us, the idols that we pursued were blatantly evil and wicked, drugs, drunkenness, crime, sexual pleasure. But there were many of us that maybe we weren't as outwardly blatant in our worship of false gods Maybe we worshiped more respectable false gods like the god, little g, of success in business, the god of people's approval, the god of our own comfort, the god of having control over other people, the god of fun experiences or of fitness or of physical beauty or the god of, of family. To not live under God's authority and for there to be this majestic, glorious, 
infinitely awesome God that there is, and for us to turn aside and worship something else and put ourselves under our own authority and reason is foolishness. It's utter foolishness, and all of us have been fools. Disobedient, the list continues. Some of us would like to, to fancy ourselves as having obeyed pretty well, but we remember what James says, that if we failed in one point of the law, we're, we're guilty of all of it. And let's face it, apart from Christ, we're, we're disobedient people. We've all lied, cheated, selfish, proud, angry, and, and haven't worshipped the one that we were created to worship. He continues, slaves to various passions and pleasures. As we've said before, some of us that's blatant and outward, but some of us it's, it's, it's subtle. Now, this is perhaps the height of our, of our folly as non-believers is that, um, you know, non-Christians, they look at Christianity, they would look at us and they would say, oh, that's, that's too rigid. That's too, too strict. If I were to become a Christian, I'm gonna have to give up this thing that I want to do. I, I wanna be free. I wanna be free to do what I want, but really... We are all slaves to various passions and pleasure. Now, there, there may be some of us that, you, you know, it's not an not a outwardly wicked thing, but some of us, maybe we've even been in church, right? There's, there's things that we can be slaves to, various passions and pleasures, even while being in church every Sunday. Maybe some of us, we came to church our, our whole lives, but really we were a slave to people's approval, what other people thought of us until we became a Christian. That it wasn't Christ that we were a slave to, it wasn't Christ that we were submitted to, but we were submitted to, to other people and their view, their view of us. Right? We could even be slaves to something like golf. Right? You men out there, you, you realize that very soon you could be enslaved to the sport of golf. It can consume your time, it can consume your money, it can consume your thoughts. Everything that you do can be wrapped around golf. And all of us were enslaved to our own various passions and pleasures before Christ. We had no ability in and of ourselves to be freed from this slavery. We couldn't want God or truly obey God. As we continue on, we were passing our days in malice and envy. You know, we see this, this manner of life comes pre-wired, for us. Have you observed little kids recently? I don't know if, you, if you're out of that stage, maybe just bring, your, bring yourself back to that, that day. Uh, you know, you see the malice there. Maybe, I mean, without verbalizing it, a kid is really saying to another kid, I want my happiness and I will hate you if you get in the way of that happiness. You know, there could be a toy that Charlie hasn't played with in a long time, but you invite other kids, another family into the house and suddenly that toy becomes very important. To Charlie, no, no, no. These toys are mine. All these toys, these toys are mine. You can you can play with whatever toy you have brought, but these these toys are mine. But envy, as well. Oh wait, actually, let me look at that toy that you have there. It oh, it's got some cool features. Okay, I'm I'm gonna get that toy and all of these toys, and they're all they're all mine. Right, and that's us right from the beginning. I see that even in my own two year old two year old son, but it, it doesn't necessarily change just because we get older. Right, that we, we envy people, right? We might envy what the possessions that another person has. And so we're going to pass our days working hard at our job or trying to advance in our career so that we can purchase the things that someone else has. Or, or maybe, you know, we think about the relationships that a, <clears throat> excuse me, another person has and we envy those. 
And we spend our time daydreaming that, oh, if only my relationships were as fulfilling as this person's seem to be. Right? We, that's the way we pass our days, according to God's word. Right? If someone gets in, in the way of my happiness, I'm going to not like them. And in this, you know, and this really leads, it's, it's really leads to hatred. That other people, non-believers, they don't love other non-believers. They use other non-believers to get what they want. And those who stand in their way of what they want, they don't like. They hate. Right? That's, that's what the portrait is of us. All of us, we ourselves were this way, and it's ugly, and it's gross, and it's scary. Because these kind of people, we know what the Bible says about these kind of people, people who are characterized by these kind of things. These kind of people have an end. These kind of people have a direction that they're headed, and it's for God's judgment. It's for God's righteous wrath against their sin, and we ourselves are there. Not one of us hasn't been headed headlong into sin on our own. And so if, if we're going to live the way that God wants us to live, that Paul's reminding of, we've got we to think the way that Paul thinks about himself. Here, he doesn't think of himself, I'm Paul, I've arrived, look at me, I'm instructing you, Titus, on how to put together the church in Crete. He says, no, I was once sinful. I was once disobedient. I was once a fool, and it's only Christ. It's only Christ that has made me anything other than that. That's, that's what we got to do, is when we see disrespect of authority in our life, or we see quarreling, we see relational conflict, we need to have a, a bookmark right here in Titus 3.3 that we go back to and we remind ourselves, this is who I truly am apart from Christ. Right? I, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I, I, I'm no better than this other person. What gives me the right to have pride or to think myself as uh, above them? I, I'm no better than them. So this is a mindset that we need to cultivate in our lives. I, I, I'd entreat you to go home today and to think, are there people that you view as being beneath you? Or you view as being, oh, well, that person's a sinner and I am in some other category of person, right? That you don't include yourself in that category of, of a sinful, sinful person. Are there people specifically in your life that you think about? That way we need to cultivate this kind of mindset where we remember, apart from Christ, I'm, I'm nothing but a sinful, foolish, disobedient person. I, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nothing apart from Christ. I, I encourage you, Surround yourself with people who are not just going to praise you all the time, but are going to help remind you of who you truly were apart from Christ. This is, a, this is an ugly picture of ourselves. But lest we despair, Paul continues. Read with me in verse 4. But. We were this, but. That glorious word, Ephesians 2.4, it brings it back to my, my mind. But. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. How refreshing is that? When we truly see ourselves and our sin, it's a, it's a black and bleak picture. It reminds me of the weather earlier this morning where it's dark and it's supposed to be daytime, but it's not. That's the picture that our, that our sin really paints, right? That, that we're separated from God because of our sin and, and we're wicked and there's no hope but then all of a sudden, something appears, right? It's like lightning that appears, right? The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. And the last thing that we need to remember that we're going to look at this morning is that we need to remember the gospel. 
We need to remember the gospel. It's crucial for us to, to remember this. And, and it says that, that the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. This main verb in this whole kind of long sentence that Paul writes here is at the beginning of verse 5 where he says he saved us, right? That's, that's the point of, of everything that he's talking about here. But the way he describes it just unfolds the beauty of it for us. And he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, that God saved us out of his goodness and his Loving kindness. Another word that we could use for loving kindness is compassion, right? And God's compassion on us is much different than what we would think about compassion today. We think, oh, look at that cute little puppy over there that has a limp. I'm going to be compassionate on that and cuddle with it and show it love. We are not cute little puppies, right? We are nasty, filthy, sinful people who hate God on our own. Yet, God's goodness. And loving kindness and his compassion extends further than our wretchedness and our wickedness and our grossness in our sin that we can't get out of on our own. That's the only way that any of us could be saved is when God's goodness and loving kindness appear. Right? We're, we're lost on our own, but then God's goodness and loving kindness appear. That, that makes me think about Christmas. It makes me appreciate Christmas in, in, in a deeper way, right? When I think about, here's this day where the Savior of the world appears, right? God takes on human flesh that we could not offer enough sacrifices. We couldn't do enough good things to make ourselves right before the Lord. And so the goodness and loving kindness of God had to appear in the person of Jesus Christ. I think about, I think about what we celebrate on Good Friday, right, that there, like lifted up above the crowd, our Savior appears. And there he is, and he's paying the penalty for sin, for my sin, for your sin that I couldn't, I couldn't pay. I could never, never pay it. I could never do enough good things to earn God's approval of me. It's due to his own mercy. He says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul's very quick to remind us, hey, it wasn't you. It wasn't what you did. It wasn't you coming to church. It wasn't you seeking after the Lord. It wasn't you giving in the offering. It wasn't you being nice to little old ladies crossing the street. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't any works done by us in righteousness, but it's solely according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. And how did, that, how did that take shape? If it wasn't our works, if our works weren't the instrument that God used, what was the instrument that God used? He tells us right here. He says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Right? God used the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again. Right? We can't help but remember John 3, right? that conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus at night where Nicodemus is, is you know, kind of just going and asking Jesus questions. And the point that Jesus wants to drive home with Nicodemus is you must be born again. Not just naturally, like we're all born into this physical world, but born spiritually. You need to be born of the Spirit. You need spiritual life. Right? And this is, this is the picture that we see in, in salvation, right? That all of us are dead, right? We have no spiritual life until God acts upon us. And when we are born again, we're washed. All of our sin is washed away at the moment that we are born again and God's spirit comes and gives us life. 
right? And the next thing he says is that we've been given the renewal of the Holy Spirit, right? That the Spirit of God is used to regenerate us, but then it, it causes us to actually have life, that there's a newness to our life. And we think about Galatians 2.20, where Paul states, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In Romans 6, Paul states that, that just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. That God, not, not through works of our own, but through his spirit, causes us to be born again. Causes us to have life, real life, for the first time through his spirit. And this, this washing, this regeneration, this renewing, it all happens. Look at how he says, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit comes in verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That God, through his spirit, sovereignly works in the hearts of sinful, wicked people who aren't searching for God like you and me. And at the moment that we hear the gospel and at the moment that, that, that we're, we're brought, our sinfulness is brought to our attention and we see our need of a savior, that God works in our life to cause us to have spiritual life so that we can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved from our sins. That's the way, that's the way it happened, right? It was, it was his grace. It was his mercy. It was his spirit working through Christ to save us. It wasn't us. It wasn't anything that we did. And it, and it just keeps on getting better and better here. Look at what he says. So that, in verse 7, being justified by his grace, right? That's just a, a summary statement of being made right with God by God's grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we're not just saved from God's wrath. We're brought into God's family. We are given life among brothers and sisters where we have an inheritance, and that inheritance is God himself. Right? According to the hope of eternal life, Jesus in John 17, 3 says that eternal life is that they may know you, God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the life that we're given, is that we're given relationship with the infinite, majestic, glorious, satisfying God of the entire universe. That's what we're given, and it's not, it's not us. It's not what we did. It's his grace. His grace. So Paul is saying, hey, remember to do these things. Re remember who you were apart from Christ. And, and remember what the good news is. Remember what God did for you. And I think reminding us of the gospel helps us at least in a couple ways, even as we think about obeying God's commands that he's, that he's listed here. And, and I think maybe one is, is that it helps us to see that salvation didn't come from us. We didn't earn it. We were people that needed God to act upon us. And so even as we think about relating with other people that are in the same category, sinner, as we are, it's going to help us to be gracious and compassionate, realizing that we're no better than this other person. It wasn't like we did some kind of works or you know, we had some kind of upbringing that, that merited God's favor more than this other person who, who, who didn't. Right? If, I, if I think about even relating to unbelievers at my workplace or my neighborhood, Right, who, who act like non-believers and they want things that non-believers want and they want, to, they want to bash on God and they want to, to not honor him the way that I, I want to honor him. Remi reminding myself that it was only God's grace that saved me is gonna help me be compassionate and want God's grace to save them as well. 
I'm going to cease being annoyed and, you know, kind of like, uh, with non-believers. And I'm going to be compassionate when I remember the compassion and the goodness and the loving kindness that God showed to me. And I think the second way that this helps us is that when we see the infinite worth of what we've been given, that we've been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, right? If I, if I think about that I've been given God, right, more than I want, need, could ever satisfy, everything, God, like he satisfies in a way that's beyond anything else in the entire world. So it helps me to treat unimportant things like turkey basters as unimportant things like turkey basters and not quarrel. Right, it helps me realize that, that, that even if the government takes more of my hard-earned money than I think they, they should, I've got Christ. Who cares about the possessions of this world? I've got Christ. I'm going to glory in my Redeemer, not this, this stuff that I can purchase with what my paycheck earns me. And I think if we see God as our goodness, we're going to be ready to share that goodness with other people. Rather than passing our days in malice and envy, we're going we're gonna to want to enjoy the goodness of God with other people. Right? We're going to want what's best for other people, which is God himself, not, not something less than that. So this morning, I, even as we see how Paul concludes in verse 8, he says the saying, the saying that, that we were all once foolish, disobedient, hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. That saying is trustworthy. That's a true statement. Yes, all of us, we ourselves were sinners, and the only way that we got saved is when God's goodness and loving kindness appeared to save us. That's trustworthy. And I want, he says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things. And so may we insist on these things. May we insist that we are reminded of what God wants us to do, that we're reminded of who we were apart from Christ, that we're reminded of the gospel together. I'd encourage you, we need daily reminders of the gospel. I need daily reminders of the gospel in my life. And I'd encourage you to think through even the way that you start your day. I, I find that if I don't start my day with reminding myself of my own sinfulness and, and, and God's goodness to me that I did not deserve, I, I start getting proud pretty quick throughout the day. And so I'd encourage you, find something, some part of your morning routine where you're gonna, you're gonna go to Titus 3 in your mind. You're gonna preach the gospel to yourself that, hey, I'm a sinner. I, I've got nothing apart from God's grace. Attach that to, to something even routine that you do every, every morning, like taking a shower or driving to work or brushing your teeth. Preach the gospel to yourself while you brush your teeth tomorrow morning. Remind yourself, be reminded of your own sinfulness and of your own need for Christ. And, and as we are reminded of these things, it will help us to devote ourselves to good works. It will help us to submit to God-ordained authority. It will help us in relationships in our life. And he says at the end of verse 8, these things are good and profitable for people. That as we are people who are soaking ourselves in the gospel, that we are reminding ourselves of what God wants to do and how he wants us to relate to those outside of Christ, how excellent and how profitable is that going to be for people who are around us right now but who are apart from Christ? And God might use us to be the instrument of salvation, that we're going to be the one that, that talks to them about the gospel. We're going to be the one that brings the good news of Jesus Christ to them that God might use to save them.
So my prayer for, for us today is that we would be reminded, that we would be reminded in a powerful way of all that God has done for us and, and from that, all of what God wants us to do as his people. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, you are so good. You are so infinitely and majestically gracious to sinners. And God, I know that for those of us that come to church every week, it is so easy for us to think of ourselves as not sinners, to think of ourselves as righteous people in and of ourselves. But God, we're, we're sinners without you. We're, we're foolish without you. It's only your goodness and loving kindness that have, that have changed us. And so God, we wanna give all the honor and praise for our salvation, this beautiful uh, relationship with yourself that we have been justified, we've been made right, and we've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord, that's all your work. And so we wanna give you all the honor and praise. And God, we pray that you would help us as your people to devote ourselves to these good works. Lord, not, not just so we can feel good about ourselves, so that your, your glory would be proclaimed, so that people would see that, that we're submitted to authority because we're submitted to you. And that's not a burden to us, Lord, that's a joy. So God, for your honor and your glory, would you work in our hearts? Would you break down pride in our hearts? And would you cause us to love you more today? Amen. Amen. Well, as always, we want to we wanna minister to you. We want to serve you. We want to come alongside of you. Uh, even if there's something today in the message that has convicted your heart, there's, there's going to be people in the front. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to counsel with you. We'd love to pray with you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've got a, a room right across the hallway where you can get more information about our church, about getting involved in a, in a Bible study. We'd love to, to serve you. So Thank you for, for being with us today and, and being a part of what God is doing here at Lakeside Bible Church. And have a great, have a great day. You're dismissed.